This is a download from News Talk 106 to 108. To download other programmes or for more information, go to newstalk.ie. Good afternoon. Well, it's Christmas, a time when old grievances can be nurtured and we all realise just how badly our parents screwed us up. But does there come a point when we all just need to get over it and move on? Forgiving bad parenting. In studio, Barbara Scully is a writer and broadcaster. Jim Sheehan is a family therapist. And Constance Harris is fashion editor at the Sunday Independent. Have you forgiven your parents? Text us at 53106 for 30 cent or tweet us at TalkingPointNT. And our musical heirlooms guest at 10 to 2 is casting director Roz Hubbard. Stay with us for that. And I feel that we should kick off with that famous Philip Larkin poem, but conscious that there are children in cars and all of that, with apologies to Mr. Larkin, I will say they screw you up, your mum and dad. <laughs> they don't mean it, but they do. They fill you with the faults they had. And one or two just for you. Jim Sheehan, is it true? <laughs> it is There's a nice easy question and, and, for it you. It is, yes. To start off with an easy question, yes. it is. It is true, yeah. and they all, it's all done unintentionally for the most part. That's the other. Is thing. that yeah, the key yeah. thing? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Parents don't mean to get the outcomes that eventually, you know, <laughs> arrive when your when your children are kind of maybe 18 and 19 and they broach that first really open conversation and want to tell you about what it's like, what you're really like as a parent, you know. And the parents often have had appraisal at work, you know, and they know what appraisal is all about. But this is appraisal at home, appraisal, direct appraisal of you as a parent. That can be a shattering moment, I think. Yeah, um, yeah. Now, I, I read somewhere once that in terms of personality, <clears throat> the, the key influencing factors are inherited. You're just born with the personality, order of birth, and mm. peer influence mm. and how your parents treated you is pretty low down the ranking. Do you agree with that or do you think what our parents did actually really does affect us? I think it really does affect us. Absolutely. It, it affects how we how we treat our own children. It affects how we treat other people. I think that's the that's the matrix in which we learn a lot of the central values by which we uh, put into operation when we're dealing with other people in the world around us. So I think that has a big influence, but it ain't the only one. You know, there was a time when we'd be talking on a show like this years ago where the parents got blamed, but they were also regarded as having the responsibility for the outcome. Now, of course, it's much, much broader because children are out there in the world much earlier and are subjected to a whole range of influences that are much broader than just the family. You Mm. know, so Barbara. What did your parents do to you and and have you forgiven them for it? (laughs) Well, I think you become very forgiving once you become a parent yourself. I think that's Mm -hmm. key uh, because I think, you know, probably as a teenager and as, you know, when you're in your early 20s, you're much more likely to say, you know, oh my God, you know, my parents did this or my parents did that and as a result, I'm whatever. But I think as soon as you start experiencing parenthood from the opposite side, from being a parent, you suddenly realise it is a ferociously hard job. And I am sure that, I mean, Sure, I'm sure, and I know my parents made mistakes with us growing up. Um, give us one, just give us oh one. Oh God! Oh <laughs> Lord! I well, you see, when I look back on my growing up, the thing that actually the the biggest thing they did to me was give me three younger brothers, and that was really I found far more traumatic than anything they actually did themselves. I mean, my father was. 
was a strange mix of he was a very conservative man he was a civil servant um, he was an extremely honest man very straight um, believed in equality to a point in that I was his eldest and I was the daughter we always got equal like coming up to Christmas we'd all get equal like there would be absolutely everything would be measured absolutely and that lasted right up to the day that we each puddled off to get married we all got equal <laughs> except on his deathbed oh, bless no. him on his deathbed I had two brothers left at this stage so myself and my two brothers were called in for a meeting um, and he wasn't quite on his deathbed but we knew things weren't good right so we called the three of us in he was in Mount Carmel Hospital we arrayed ourselves around his bed myself as eldest my next brother uh, who was about three, four years younger than me and then my youngest brother who is an artist, right? And is about seven years younger than me. We arrayed ourselves around the bed and he proceeded to tell us that, you know, he felt he was shuffling off and he wanted us, uh, there was various things he wanted us to do but he, he wanted to, he said, I've called you on here today and, and really David, he said, look into my middle brother, I really want you to take this on board now because Barbara, you're a woman and Jim, you're an artist, so you're a bit of a deatherhead. Um, and I remember thinking the man is dying, you can't say anything, <laughs> zip it Scully. So I did, I zipped it. So I think it's true. But I mean, I never really experienced, oh men, that was the other thing when I was a teenager. You know, if the lads were out all night long doing un- unmentionable things, I'm sure they were great fellas. If I was caught, which I was a few times, yeah. the same thing. I got absolutely murdered, murdered for it. Um, so I guess I guess that. And are you over that now or is that something that you still carry? That no, sense think, of unfairness? No, I, I don't really. I mean, I do feel sorry. And actually, I have three daughters as a result of my having grown up with brothers. And I believe you can kind of wish for things very much and, and you can bring them into reality. So I never got a son, which I was delighted about. <laughs> really, I was very thrilled to have only daughters. And I I'm constantly telling them, you're very lucky you don't have brothers. Oh, my God, you should have been me with three brothers. That was really and you're very lucky to have each other. But somebody, one of their friends recently was singing her brother's praises. And I was like, gosh, I never really experienced that. So, yeah, I mean, you do. I, I know that the mistakes I know I'm making mistakes with my own children and I'm, I have made mistakes with every single one of them, I'm sure. And they will be the completely different mistakes that my parents make. And when they go on to be parents, please, God, they'll make a whole heap of mistakes as well. Yeah, so it's and part of life. So Constance, now, I mean, obviously we should say, so your parents are Anne Harris and Owen Harris, two of the most enigmatic and influential people in Ireland. Uh, What did they bring to your upbringing and how are you passing it on to your son? Well, I I had an extraordinary childhood. I mean, my parents were had they were my mother was 20 when she had me. And so she was practically a child. Owen was Owen was uh, just as young. And, uh, you know, they were friends with Sean Aria. There was an extraordinary time in Ireland and I was an only child for 12 years and I was dragged everywhere with them. So as a result, I saw all walks of life. I mean, probably some people today would say it would be bad parenting. I was out in pubs until midnight. You know, I was at parties. Uh, There was nakedness involved because it was the 70s. But, you know, it was fabulous. Uh, you know, I, I look back and I, I look at my son's upbringing today and I just think you have seen nothing because I know you think you know lots from the Internet, but you've actually seen nothing. And um, I, I'm very grateful to the two of them for the wonderful childhood. And did you think it was fabulous at the time or was it fabulous in retrospect? It was fabulous. I do remember it because I, I had absolute freedom. I mean, it's you know, we have helicopter parents now that don't allow their children to step one foot in front of them. My parents gave me freedom. So I was allowed. Adults would talk to me. They would explain theories to me. So, no, I mean, I, the pubs were tedious, you know, st- sitting in a pub with cigarettes around you until midnight was a pain in the ass. But but 
it was good. It wasn't. It's not retrospect. I do remember it. I was always very appreciative of it. And how did that inform then the way you've reared your son? Did you want to give him the same things? Well, and I has it worked out? <laughs> I couldn't because I'm a squarer person quite naturally. You know, like as I said, there was all these naked people around me and I would refuse <laughs> to take off my clothes and it was my body and this was the phrase that I had, you know. So, but what I did have was that I had my son. I was very grateful to have a boy. I had always wanted a little brother. So now I had my son. He was a companion and um, I let him have his freedom. I, I mean, I, I didn't hang out in pubs and things like that. But when we were in parks, I'd let him toddle off. And people used to say to me, gosh, you're, you're, you're not worried. And I'm going, no, he has to fall. He has to learn how to take care of himself. And, uh, you know, that's what I try to do. But and I have tried to push him around culturally, but he fights me at every level. So I've given up now. And, and so did it work out? What, what age is he now? He's 17 on Christmas Day. And so 18, 18 sorry. On Christmas yeah, Day. On Christmas Day, yeah. Yes, oh, I was wow. telling a researcher the Coombe on Christmas Day was a bloody and violent place. <laughs> <laughs> so, so far, do you think you did the right thing? Absolutely. We can't we can't forget what we do, you know, and uh, I study a lot of spiritual and alternative stuff. And one, in Taltic teachings, they say you pick your parents. And I think that's quite an empowering thing. Why be a victim and just go, what have my parents done to me? And go, well, I chose these parents. What did I get from them that was positive and powerful? And that's my attitude. And I've actually brought him up that way and he likes it too. And do you think there's not enough of that, that we are all going around with a chip on our shoulder blaming our parents? Um, yes, I mean, certainly when I was growing up in my 20s and the 80s and 90s, people talked a lot like that. Fortunately, we don't hear it quite so much now, you know, or, or maybe it's just I'm not attracting so many victims around me because, you know, when they come near me, I just turn away. I just can't can't deal with it anymore. There's too much time wasting in that. I mean, there's genuine victims in life, but there's people who are indulging and those people I just, you know. You know, Jim, that yeah. that resonates uh, with yeah. me that, are, are, you know, yeah. do we just need to say, OK, it wasn't our parents. We are our own people and, yes. and we need to move on. Yeah, because I think the the distance between our parents' experiences and our experience in this generation is widening all the time. And one of the things I think that parents experience nowadays is that the the children are growing up in a world that is drastically different from their own world. And so therefore, they begin to see their children in a different kind of way. You know, maybe 20, 30 years ago, you could watch your children growing up and you saw them in some ways as kind of miniature adults people who actually with the passage of time would inevitably begin to see the world in the way that you see it in the, in the so-called normal way that you see it. And now that's kind of different. I think lots of families nowadays have a sense that the children who seem so different to them are not going to become the more like us adults. You know, there's a sense that perhaps they're going to be irrevocably quite different from us, you know. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something to do with the pace of change, you know. Uh, that wasn't there in the 50s and 60s and 70s, you know, where, where we could reliably expect that that our young people would grow to be more like us and more like the values that we have. So we're so having to deal with that difference, I think. And what is the best way to deal with that? Does that mean that you do have to, like Constance was saying, you know, just let them go a little is that what we need to do? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Because, you know, the more you kind of try to make your child, you know, a miniature version of yourself, uh, the, that really restrains them. They can't then become somebody else. They have to work very hard if they want to retain your love and affection. They have to become a little version of you. I often hear hear parents describe their children. I say, you know, tell me about Johnny or tell me about something. And they say, oh, Martha is a mini me. And I think, oh, my God, you know, you know, Absolutely. she's a mini me and mm. she's already being fashioned into a not kind being given of a, a choice to be anything other than. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it really is about sort of seeing the uniqueness of 
of each child too. I think, I yeah, think that's yeah. Barbara. Yeah. I think yeah. that's exactly right. Yeah, I think one of the biggest. I think it's one of the toughest. Uh, lessons you probably learn as a parent of teenagers early on mm. is that mm. the greatest thing you can do for them is to give them um, the freedom to become themselves and to realise they may not follow the path that you would like them to follow. Um, they may decide to follow their own path and to learn to kind of stand back and say, OK, that unless it's something absolutely like. But sometimes I find myself looking at one of my sons and going, oh, no, he's just like me. God help <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's a sign of admiration, isn't it? <laughs> but I might, have this might urge. Might be bad in your case, Sarah. <laughs> yeah. But do you do you see yourself in your in any of your daughters? Um, I suppose there's elements. Yeah, I mean, I, I would see elements of both myself and my husband um, um, in in them. Um, but no, I don't think. One of the things that I probably had, and I, I remember this, when, although it kind of, with Carla, it was different as well, because my eldest daughter is now 27, and I was on my own with her for the first 10 years before I got married and then had the other two. So, um, but I would have, growing up, because of the three brothers that I mentioned, I would have always had a very close relationship with my mother. Um, there was 25 years between us, who, you know, which wasn't a huge, she was a young, most of my friends actually were youngest children of big families, so my mother was younger than most of my friends' mothers. So we would have had a very good relationship, and that lasted right up after I left school we used to go on holidays together once a year every year and we had great sport all together and great crack and I think certainly with Carla I had this expectation through her teenage years because I started this friendship with my mother which you know is a bit but it, it goes back to what Jim was saying about times being totally different when I was a teenager when I was a young teenager I mean my first drink was bought for me by, by my mother I'm conscious my 16 year old is listening to me. Um, <laughs> my first drink was bought for me by my mother um, you know and we, we had a few adventures together which probably wouldn't have been seen as being so she was trying to be parenting. your she was trying to be your no, friend she wasn't trying she never tried we just naturally really and we still do to this day she's nearly 80 we just yeah. really always very much enjoyed each other's company um, we would share I suppose a lot of similar we like a lot of the same things and we both would have a fairly um, similar sense of humour so we spent a lot of time together um, which was I mean my friends did think it was a bit weird at, at some stages mm. and but it lasted most of the way up through school but I think when I then had Carla and because we had this close bond because it was just the two of us for 10 years I kind of expected that to be that we that I could reciprocate that and it took much longer do you know um, she she had a more normal kind of teenage experience where instead of thinking I was kind of cool which I thought my mother was kind of cool she thought I was a disaster so she did what most teenagers do and you know wasn't really into spending a whole lot of time with me uh, Davies texted Sarah dreading Christmas Day rouse rouse and more rouse yeah Christmas definitely crystallises all this stuff there's no doubt about that and Jamie wants to know are your guest brothers listening in that's yours <laughs> I hope and not. someone else says I'm 23 and my parents split up when I was 10 my dad lost a lot of money in the divorce and was very resentful which he took out on me and my brother my man moved in with me with an alcoholic partner and I spent my teenage years being passed from my dad to my mom and I've no doubt I wasn't wanted but I get on fine with my parents now. The trick is to learn that their behaviour won't change. But if you can deal with that when you're your own independent person, then you can still have a relationship. Now, that sounds really mature. Uh, but somebody else says children are unruly today. And that's because parents don't show with any authority anymore. That's you, Constance, obviously. <laughs> uh, children rule the roost, mostly because of bad parenting around today. Just look at any shop, kids running mad. And I suppose Barbara and Constance might both relate to this. I'm a single parent and I love raising my child by myself. I do get looked down on and talked down to because mm -hmm. of that. But I'll soldier on. Parenting is very different today. And I hope my child grows up to have a very different life than I have now. 
Constance, am I right? Are you a single parent? Yes, I am. Yeah. So what was that experience like? Um, it's lonely. It's incredibly lonely. Uh, you live a, a, a life of house arrest. Um, you can't get out. You've always got to pay people to, to be able to get out of your house, even to work. Um, but on the other hand, it's very satisfying because there's no one to interfere or compromise on your, your parenting. And, you know, I, I did a good job until he was about 12 and I recognised he was changing. The teenage years were very, very hard and it would have been good to have a man around for that. In what way were they hard? Well, when you bring up a boy on your own and, you know, he's asserting his masculine power, you know, and really he needs a father to show him to what how to do it and to guide him. And he didn't really have that. And um, he and thus he was challenging me. And I was very aware that if I if I reacted back and basically smashed him for being so, you know, cheeky and insolent, that it would be smashing his himself and that he wouldn't grow up into a man that would be full and confident of himself. So I really had to step back and I actually went to parenting courses. And I really think like we assume that we can do everything in, in life today. We can't. We need assistance. And the parenting courses were very valuable and one of the most valuable things they taught me is that you have a teenager in the house the child you knew is gone absolutely gone and that you must look at them as a stranger living in your house and that you knock on the door before entering and if they speak rudely to you you just let it go and those things have helped me get through it and now I mean literally I think 15 is probably the worst year and then 16 with t- transition year is a wonderful thing they can grow in that year and now you know in this 17 it's been a really really happy year and I actually took him on one of the courses with me Oh and how yeah. did that work out? Oh he was kicking and screaming when he went there but by <laughs> the, but it was all adults you know he actually happened to be the only teenager there but by the end of it he really valued it he learned how to talk to me and he actually said to me I was saying to him we we're coming on this and you know what, what, what does he feel as a teenager mm. and he said he sees in his friends that they're not getting adequate support and guidance and he sees them being very self-destructive and he wishes that they had more good guidance so that because he thinks that parents stopping them making mistakes in their teens will only leave it to them to make mistakes in their 20s and I thought that was interesting that is interesting. Um, Jim, one thing though I do want to get in is it's not just about the parents but siblings and mm. I, I'm one of five and I know other families where for example the youngest kind of came off the worst during the childhood years because yes. everybody went Lord of the Flies really. Um, <laughs> do we not say enough about what siblings did to each other? Yeah, I think we don't because we learn so much from our siblings and you know, say if you're in the middle, I think you were, we were talking outside, weren't yes. we? And we're, and we're you both said middle children. I said, you're y- a middle. Yeah. I, I guess right. You, how, how did you know that? What What are the giveaways? The, I, I think because I am too. Right, OK. And what are Middle the, children just know each other. Right? <laughs> <laughs> they just, it's a starting Kiro, point. What, right? Kiro, Kiro, get it's a starting point. Yeah. <laughs> it's a starting point. Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, you see, if you see oldest children, you know, we we're saying this outside too. Oldest children tend to be the practice ground because of the place where parents start to become parents, first of all. And one of the most obvious things about parenting, I think, is something we actually forget, is that for the most part, we do it at least for a while with another person, mm. you know. And that's uh, often the most challenging thing. Very often we talk about parenting. We're kind of looking at children. We're saying, how, what, how do we deal with their behavior? How do we manage this, that and the other? You know, probably the more difficult thing is the fact that we have to do it with someone else, you know. And it's interesting listening to, to Constance because I think a lot of parents who are parenting mostly on their own would have that experience. The relief at not having to negotiate everything if you're kind of not on the same page with your partner. Mm-hmm. And that's something I think we often forget. The fact that we can meet somebody, really fall in love, have a great time together as a twosome, you know, have a wonderful time together in every part of that bit of world. 
then when it comes to kind of bring up this precious creature who we've had together, all hell breaks loose, you know, and it's like living in two different worlds, you know. <laughs> a lot of parents will tell me, you know, we get on great when it's just us, <laughs> you know, you know, you know. So and put the three you, year old. <laughs> how do you get around that? Well, you don't get around it at all, really. You don't get around it because you have to you have to kind of work with it and you have to kind of make a space for the other person to parent. You know, mm-hmm. because we all come in with different visions of parenting, you know, and uh, I'm not a parent myself. But but when I was getting married, I had a vision of myself as a parent. And I want to read a poem later that will Would be you want to read it now? Well, OK, because okay. we might forget. Yeah, we so might we forget. might as well get okay. on with it. This is a little poem by Cal Gibran. Uh, yes. The 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 Indian, writings. yeah, yeah, and this is actually a poem. One of the poems I was going to read at my own wedding with my wife Helena, and we weren't allowed to read this at the at the wedding because it wasn't Christian enough, or because ah. it wasn't kind of part of the. And they'd probably old let testament. you do it now, but they'd probably not then. yeah. But we're not going to get married again, so we're not going to do that again. <laughs> okay, Anyhow, so this is it. a rerun yeah. of that moment that didn't occur. So okay. this is not so this just for, for Helena, us. This is for Helena. Yeah, yeah. And it's not so long. And a woman who held a babe against her bosom said, speak to us of children. And he said, your children are not your children. They're the sons and daughters of life's longing for itself. They come through you, but not from you. And though they are with you, yet they belong not to you. You may give them your love, but not your thoughts, for they have their own thoughts. You may house their bodies, but not their souls, for their souls dwell in the house of tomorrow, which you cannot visit, not even in your dreams. You may strive to be like them, but seek not to make them like you. For life goes not backward, nor tarries with yesterday. You are the bows from which your children as living arrows are sent forth. That's Isn't that beautiful? beautiful? Well, I think yeah. I'm going yeah. to cry. Yeah. So we'll uh, take the ads. We'll all have a weep okay. and uh, we'll come back and resume. <laughs> Talking Point on News Talk 106 to 108. And you're very welcome back. We're asking if it's time to forgive your parents. Have you forgiven yours? 53106 for 30 cent or tweet us at TalkingPointNT and hashtag NTFM. Uh, Texter says, I'm a single parent and we were just saying I have so much respect for single parents. Don't know how they do it. And I love raising my child by myself. I do get, oh, hang on. Did I read that already? Oh, sorry about that. But Jeff said, Sarah, not everyone has had a good childhood. So to say that you choose your own parents is a bit much. Yeah, Constance, I thought maybe Maybe is that putting a bit much on a child who did have crappy parents? Well, I mean, we all, every single person has had crappy experiences. <laughs> None of us are free of that. OK, yeah. and it's how we handle those experiences will will direct how our lives go. So I could choose to be victim about my childhood, but I choose not to be. And I think the beauty about thinking that you as a spirit incarnated choosing your parents to get learnings and experience in this life. I think that's beautiful. And it also stops you from being powerless to being powerful. So if I think about the fact that in my teens, my father was alcoholic and manic depressive and that that was very tough and I could have been, you know, depressed and oppressed by it. But what I actually learned about it was that I learned to be independent. I learned that actually the fact that my father was sick was not going to affect who I was and I was not going to become sick with him. And then as I saw him grow past that and develop past that, I got to see that actually people have a way out of depression. They have a way out of alcoholism. So again, it's not a powerless, it's a powerful. 
So it's about how you look at your life. Now, I didn't just come to this easily. Mm. I've gone to a lot of courses. I've done a lot of self-development. And I've learned that these are the things that help, that if we keep staying buried down there in the past, we will never get out or we'll never create anything. But if we can work in some way to come to a place of peace of the past, we can create something wonderful right now. And that's where I'm at. And I know a lot of adults who maybe haven't had experiences that intense, but still can't get past it. What would you say to them? How You know, so that was very brave and hard what you did. How do you begin that journey? Um... I, I think we I think we all of us just fall upon that journey somehow. Why did you start it? Why did I start it? I started it um, actually because my son nearly died. What happened? And, well, when I was five months pregnant, I nearly lost him. And I spent a month in the coom being told I was going to lose him. And then I was discharged. And that was a very rude awakening. And actually, that's where Owen and I really came together very closely because he took me out of that hospital. He took me home and he fed me and minded me until I was well enough to walk and be well again. And... Uh, I suppose so. that's a sudden awakening because I was very successful at the time in my career. I was working in the film business and, um, you know, doing well. So I stopped. And um, then thereafter, the child, even though he went full term, was always sick. And so I just had this couple of years of dealing with a sick child all the time. And then there came a point where he had a really bad asthma attack and I thought he was going to die. And I remember going to this wonderful Chinese doctor in Cornell's Court um, because antibiotics were just making him worse. And she said to me, don't worry about your child. She said, but you've got to go and sort yourself out because how is he going to believe he's going to live if you don't believe he's going to live? And that was very tough to hear that, you know, but she was right. I had lost faith that he was going to live. So I then went to a healer and an acupuncturist in Rathmines called Gary Collins. And six weeks later, I was a different human being and I got interested in the spirit again. And so as a person who was brought up uh, uh, agnostic, um, I, I had no sense of religion whatsoever. And so I started to quest more. And I suppose, whereas I don't know if I believe in God or not, but that taught me to go look at my life in a different way, find other solutions, stop being passive and being rooted in the past and actually try and change things. And it, it's been a wonderful journey. Isn't it interesting that that moment came when your father minded you like a child? Yes, absolutely. That was the start. That was... I mean, my mother was there as well, but but I remember because of what had happened with Owen and I, you know, a wonderful father, tough teens, then a period of separation, I was living abroad, that that was the time, you know, yes, yeah, so we got close again. Yeah, Barbara, it just reminded me, I had a moment with my mother. We had a lot of conflict in my teenage years and after college, I got very sick and uh, she was actually nursing me. Mm. And there was a moment when I thought, Actually, nobody else would do this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I had that moment when I was pregnant the second time on Roisin and I can remember coming home from work and being just so dog tired. And I always had, having been a single parent, I always thought... Once I, you know, now that I was married and I had the father of my child here, I was going to be treated like a princess and I was going to be minded and all that. And what a load of disappointment that was. It was a big learning. And I remember coming home from work one day and being so tired and coming into the house and saying to Paul, oh, I'm so exhausted. I just have to go and lie down. I'm going to lie down on the sofa. And like the unsaid thing on that was, will you just start dinner or something? You know, because Carla was whatever age she was. And he was like, yeah, yeah, Grant, you go and lie down. I said, I don't know where Carla was. I know when I woke up anyway, darkness had descended. And the first thing I did when I woke up was try to smell the air to see was there something cooking and there was not a smell of anything. Oh. And I went upstairs and found he'd gone up and got into bed himself and <gasps> gone to sleep as well. And I remember bringing one of my girlfriends and saying, this is just, I can't believe this. And she said, Barbara, what anybody needs.
needs is their mammy, <laughs> not your bloody husband. <laughs> and, and I thought that I is so true. I think the last time I had breakfast in bed was in my mother's house. Yeah. And that was probably about 18 years ago. Yeah. And I should say when my husband <laughs> is at home, I get breakfast in bed every single morning. Oh, you're spoiled. You I do. am. I am. I get a tea and a fresh Every morning. Every morning. But Jim and Cork has said it's appropriate time. When would you get to the wonderful things okay. our parents did for us? Mm. Mine taught me to be civilised, I hope. But you also must remember that what we think of as good or bad now is just transitory and will change. Jim Andrade says, I'm an only child and really had a strong bond with my parents growing up. I appreciate everything they did for me and I don't think many other people do. Parents make you what you are. I think everybody here would agree with that. Yeah. Um, Jim, that that moment that Constance had and that I had when we were adults and we just needed our parents to mm. mind us. Mm. Uh, I remember Kitty Holland saying in the Musical Heirlooms interview that we did that, you know, childhood is actually a lifetime conversation with your parents. Does there ever come a moment when you're not a parent anymore, when you can wash your hands and say, look, go, you're an adult, sort it out yourself? Yeah, I think, yes. I mean, there, there, there is clearly a moment when when parents, the, the space of parenting inside somebody as they're getting older gets smaller and smaller, you know, and they say to their young people who are then in their 40s, you know, you're 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 doing it fine. You're doing grand. Keep going. But why know? do we keep but needing it? We still keep well, needing you them. See, because we start out in the world as very little people, and we have that whole history within us of vulnerability uh, that's always there. Yes, we grow to be autonomous. Yes, we grow to be able to act and do wonderful things in the world. Maybe if we're lucky enough, but we never fully detach ourselves from that experience uh, of being little of being dependent and of being cared for by people who are really close and who want to keep us alive. It's the same with the ducks, you know, it's the same with the ducks. So I think that that's part of the reason that that you're always parent. And when you listen to people who are in their 60s, 70s and 80s, they'll say about their 45 and 50 year old Mm. children, you know, there's a moment where you're always a parent, Mm. you know, right to that moment where you give your last breath. And is that you know, okay? But is of, that okay? Of course it is because it's a kind of belonging. You know, we're, we're so hooked in some ways upon the whole sense of autonomy. You know, we f- sometimes forget the other side of that mutual belonging. You know, being a parent and a child is a funny kind of relationship. It's a kind of belonging that's not an owning, you know. It's a belonging that allows people to make a claim on each other. But that claim is limited. You know, so it's a strange kind of paradoxical kind of experience, I think, for parents and children. You know, I I can expect something. I can claim something from my parent. But how much? How much? Where's the limit? Do you know? And, and I think sometimes the parents who who really do struggle the most are the ones who think that they should be without limit. You know, mm. that they're that what they have to give must be endless. You know, sometimes the best moments in changing a parenting relationship where a pa- is where a parent says, I can do no more. Mm-hmm. You know, I've come to that point, you know, where, you know, I'm helpless to help you anymore. And I think you know? that Barbara, that could be a creative moment. <laughs> and I think that also holds true, in particular at this time of year, when we're all going to be forced together uh, in our families <laughs> and extended families. And, you know, I mean, advertising has, I think, a huge role to play in this as well. I was writing recently about, you know, in all the Christmas ads, it's always snowing and all the families are all delighted to be all together, you know, which is a load of bunkum. Um, but I do think that you get to the stage of realising that just because people are your family, now, whether it's your parents, your siblings, your in-law, 
in-laws, whoever, just doesn't mean you have to really like spending time with them. And I think once you get to that realisation, I love my family. I love them. And I love that, you know, whoever's still here is still here. And that's all great. But I mean, I also love the fact that, you know, at some, that there will only be a set amount of time that we will be together and then they'll all go back off to their own houses and I'll go back to my own house and that'll all be fine. And I think it's OK to say that, you know, to say, you know, we're going to spend just this much time, all of us together, and we can do that and that's fine. And but this too will pass. That, and this too will pass. Yes, and, you, you know, yes, you can plaster on the yes, smile and you can yes. let things go. Yeah. And certain. And I think to also always look at, you know, is this worth having a row about? And it's probably not. So, you know, just relax. It, Constance, mm-hmm. it is amazing, though, to me how Christmas in just in one little thing like we're having a negotiation in our family at the moment about who's going to eat dinner where and a simple thing like a simple meal is just ripping open some wound that I didn't even know existed <laughs> you know what how do you get around that whole Christmas thing is it an issue in your house who eats their dinner no because no. my Auntie Mary very nicely has hosted Christmas for us for most of my life right so Mary takes on all the responsibility for that very kindly and uh, and Kevin and Sophie and uh, so we get to kind of what we do is we do visits we right. go around the place visiting people yeah. probably disturbing their breakfasts and <laughs> you get everybody yeah. in there yeah I'm yeah. very grateful I don't have to do uh, the now the other thing I'm curious about you mm. is so your sister Nancy is 12 years younger than you yes. now that must have been very interesting for you to as you say grow up as an only child and suddenly this, there's this new person there and just on the topic of competition between siblings how was that for you? Well, well, Nancy was, I was desperate for brother and sister. I campaigned my parents for most of my life. So (laughs) finally they conceded. Finally they gave me a sibling and absolutely adored her. I mean, she's wonderful. And uh, was she reared differently? Uh, Yes, she was. Everything was different. I mean, we actually, we do recognise, you know, how different we are. But at the same time, you still love. So do you think she got it better? No, because where on one thing things were better in one way, they weren't in another way. Do you know what I mean? So it all evens out, you know. Um, So, yeah. Um, Jim, I know a a lot of siblings who do compete and there are resentments, you know, as to how, you know, there's always a child that feels they were less loved and Mm. stuff like that. Mm. So how do they get around that? With with difficulty, but Mm. also with acknowledgement in my own family, for example, we were five boys and one girl. And my sister definitely over the years had the experience of not having the same kind of parental interest in her her activities. You know, the parents were all interested in football that the boys were playing, not so interested in in the fact that she was playing her own girl sports and uh, different kinds of expectations. So getting over that kind of thing is very difficult but those were the kind of gender differences that were there in the Ireland of Mm. the 50s and the 60s And was it just about gender do you think? Oh, I, it, it, well, in my own family mm. situation, I think it, I think it really was. I don't think there was any sort of scapegoating of my sister, yeah, really. Yeah. Certainly not intentionally. And is you she know. is she over it? Is she past I, it? She is now. But the point is this: that I think for many, many years it took her quite a while because it wasn't acknowledged. You know, it wasn't acknowledged. I think that's the thing that keeps mm. people stuck in something that's where correct. we don't actually we don't actually name it for what it was. You know, yeah, and I think for a lot of the time, I know when I listened to her for years, I thought, oh, my goodness, my poor parents, you know, why is she so, you know, kind of ungrateful? Really, she got this, that and the other. But in fact, she was right. You know, she was right. She didn't get fair and equal. How long did it take for you to accept that? Took me a good while. Took me a good while to even see it, to take my 
blinkers off and really have a look. And I think it was only when I, uh, through my professional life, really became interested in the question of power and gender and how power operates so subtly and unfairly through the lens of gender in our culture that made me really think about that in a different way. So Mm. did you say it to her? Absolutely. Uh, Very much so. And and what happened? And I think she I think she appreciated that. But it sometimes takes more than one person to acknowledge that. I think probably she would have liked that acknowledgement from my parents, you know, more. But of course, they're dead now a a, a good one. Yeah, but I'm sure it was helpful. Those things are. Barbara, have a minute left. I was just going to say, Jim's just reminded me and having dissed my brothers in the first minute of the show when I spoke <laughs> about them, yeah. um, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't actually change anything for all the fact mm-hmm. that I, I, I kind of, you know, I think growing up with brothers mm-hmm. was because I think it made me um, extremely feisty and extremely able to stand up for yeah. myself because yeah. I had to. Um, it was one against three um, and I think it made me hugely independent. So in actual fact, I wouldn't change anything. So as Constance would say, you chose not to be a victim. It made you who you are. Uh, look, finally, Jim, Claire has texted in um, wanting to know again what was the name of the poem she loved it, it. it's from Cal Gibran and Cal it's Gibran. the prophet okay the prophet. it's a oh, section prophet, in a long yes. poem yeah, yeah. okay yeah, well you absolutely. know what I'll tweet yeah. it and, we, and yeah, we'll photocopy certainly. that bit and yeah. then maybe put it up on the great, website great. look I'm afraid I have to go uh, Barbara, Jim and Constance thank you so much for uh, the chat today um, hope you all have a good psychodrama free Christmas <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Ross Hubbard's musical heirlooms are after these <laughs> Thanks for listening to this News Talk 106 to 108 podcast. To download other programs or for more information, go to newstalk.ie.